0: Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of Leverage 2 Market Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is
1: Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. We're here today with Hugh Blaine, who is the president of Claris Consulting and the go-to expert for converting human potential into accelerated business results. His work centers on helping executives and entrepreneurs challenge assumptions, jettison complacency, and catapult growth. He's the author of Seven Principles of Transformational Leadership, Create a Mindset of Passion, Innovation, and Growth. His clients include Sony. Sony. Starbucks, Nordstrom's, Microsoft, Pepperdine University, KPMG, and Costco. And he's got a top log on leadership and mindset and is an in-demand speaker. So welcome, Hugh.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Linda. Thanks for having me.
1: So tell me, uh, you work a lot with obviously with those types of clients. You work with executives. You also work with entrepreneurs. What are the biggest barriers in general that you see to success?
0: You know, I just did a a survey of my readers, and and we came up with three things that were really uh, big issues for them. The first is the vast majority of people probably listening to this and in the world of work, they are overscheduled and they're overwhelmed. (laughs) You know, and I I sometimes like to say that we become human doings as opposed to human beings. You know, we go from one meeting to another meeting to another meeting, from one task to another, and we just don't have a whole lot of white space. So we're overscheduled and we're overwhelmed. And I think the second thing is is that we lack clarity and focus now those two things maybe sound like they're similar, but I think that what we we don't have real clarity about what we are broadcasting into the world of work and what we really want our work life to be like. and I sometimes say that you know it's like we're driving in fog, you know we got one foot on the brake and one foot on the accelerator, and so the clarity is, well, what do I do if I really want to make progress professionally so That's the second. And then, believe it or not, the third thing is there's a lot of people who have this playing not to lose mindset. You know, They're somewhat floundering as opposed to flourishing.
1: So tell me a little bit more about that because I think that's very interesting. So you're saying there's a huge difference between people who are playing to win and people who are playing not to lose. Tell me more about that.
0: Absolutely. I'll use myself as a personal example. So my father was an entrepreneur and successful for a period of time. When I was six years old, my father's businesses had a significant reversal, and at six years old, people came to our house to repossess our furniture. I didn't know it at the time, but what was planted in the fertile soil of my six-year-old imagination was whatever I had would be taken away from me, Mm. and so I go fast forward 40 years, and I'm a serial entrepreneur. I was at that time on my fifth business, and... I realized that my mindset was the biggest barrier to my success. And I was playing not to lose. I had accumulated some nice financial well-being, but I was now playing it safe. I don't want to lose it. And when I started to pull that apart, I learned that if I wanted to flourish, and that's an interesting word, Linda, flourish is a state of excellence, boldness, a willing to experiment, that I wasn't flourishing. I was floundering. And that's what I do now is I help people move from a floundering mindset into a flourishing one. Does that make sense? It
1: does. And as we think about it, I think in sports you see this where a team is, you know, they're in a playoff or a Super Bowl or, or some other World Series. Last and year. Yeah, they're, they're playing not to lose, and then what happens? What happened, you know, with the, um, you know we, we had the Patriots come from behind, right, and just yes. just totally walk away with that. Yep.
0: That's an interesting piece that you make up. So when you think that the Patriots were down by three touchdowns in the Super Bowl and that the mindset of the Patriots was we still got this, right. we're going to win this game. The Atlanta Falcons, and if you go back and look at the Atlanta Falcons owner, they came down to the sidelines. In the third quarter, because they thought that they had made this, the Atlanta Falcons started to play not to lose. And you do not do that with Tom Brady and the Patriots. Now, I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan, and my wife is from the East Coast, and she loves the Patriots. And I will say, (laughs) deferring to my wife, the Patriots are astounding. And so is Tom Brady. And they said, we've got this. And they went out there, and they won the Super Bowl. Absolutely stunning.
1: Fascinating, fascinating. So, those are some of the barriers, but what questions, or is there one question in particular that using people aren't asking about performance that might make a huge difference? It may even pay big dividends if they started to ask that.
0: Yeah, so your audience is a lot of marketers, so they'll understand branding.
1: So, Mm -hmm.
0: I say that leaders have a default brand, a desired brand, and a defined brand, excuse me, a designed brand. Okay. So think about this. So what is it that I want to communicate into the world? What's my brand going to be? What's my brand promise? And the vast majority of leaders are not asking this question. Is my leadership brand a barrier or a catalyst to accelerated performance? Let me give you – so here's an example. If you think about your brand, you can go and ask uh, your constituents, the people that matter most to you, Ask them this question. Give me four words that you think best describe my leadership. Mm -hmm. Now, you can go out and ask eight or ten people this question, and you're going to get 32 to maybe 40 words that people would use to describe You, you. You parse the word. You look at the words and say, what are the common themes? And you may come up with four or five descriptors. And you can look at those and say, this is how people see me. But is that really a differentiator in the marketplace? Right. In other words, are these just the price of entry for being in my role, or are these truly distinguishing characteristics that are going to attract people to me? So what I say is you're not asking that question. You're not asking the question every day, am I a catalyst or a barrier to increase performance, and is my brand helping or hurting? That's interesting. So what
1: you're saying is that strong leaders have – not just a good brand, but an understanding of their brand and what they need to do to help influence the organization to move forward.
0: Absolutely. I'll give you an example. One of my clients is the provost of a university, and with Mm -hmm. a lot of universities that had law schools, they had to have a really hard conversation about some of the programs that they were offering. And she looked at me and she said, listen, we're going to have a reduction in force. It will happen. My question to you is how do I do this in such a way that it can actually maybe go smoother? Is it any possibility that this can go smoother and that we can maybe do it faster? And I said, absolutely, there is. Let's talk about your brand. Mm -hmm. So what she did is she articulated some of the four core uh, attributes that she wanted to be known for. And she said, I'm going to live this out every single day. And so she designed her brand with talking points that she infused into this riff program and here's the amazing thing she actually was able to cut the time in half that she thought it was going to take from start to finish to do the riff and she did it with 80 percent her words 80 percent less friction and a hundred percent more buy-in
1: interesting that's
0: the power of a brand you mm-hmm. can do things faster with less resistance more buy-in but that really requires a leader to get clear what's my brand What's my purpose, and how am I going to project that into the world of work?
1: Excellent. You know, as marketers, of course, we're always pushing brand, but it's interesting um, because I, I do feel that individuals have their own brand and that you are a product, a service. You have um, you, you have a, a look to you. You have certain features. You have a price. You're packaged in a certain way, and I don't think people think about that enough, so it's it's fascinating to hear you say that. Because I think you're absolutely right. Now, in your book, you say projects have gotten a bad rap. What do you mean by that? I mean, don't we all have (laughs) to do projects, whether we want to or not?
0: Well, yes, you do. But you have a particular mindset that you can bring to the project. Now, when you think of projects, Uh I think that projects are an interesting – you can play with the word a little bit. So there is the project, and it's about taking something that may not be working and trying to turn it into something that does work. Mm -hmm. But there's also something, you can use the word as project. Yep. So projects project into an ecosystem, into a culture, what really is important. So, for example, why is it that the vast majority of projects are inhabited with people who have time to be on the project team? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, wait a minute, if you're going to find the very best people to be on a project, it should be the people who have the least amount of time to do it. So, in my experience, what I have seen, if it gotten a bad rap because they're inhabited with people who have the time and who don't necessarily have the inclination to things that I think are just absolutely essential, there's four things I say. One, are these people on the project willing to challenge assumptions? Mm-hmm. Are they willing to jettison the status quo and say that may be how we've done it in the past, but that's not what we're really doing here now. How do we dramatically and ruthlessly reframe this? So that's number one. Number two, are they really dialed into value creation and customer success? So I think you have to be an evangelist for customer success if you're going to be in a particular project team. Which customer could we just astound, interesting mm-hmm. choice of word, astound with? So much value that they become a magnet and say, "Working with you is indispensable." Yep. So that's the second piece, and then they have to have a bias for uh, fast action. The vast majority of project teams go in and say, "Well, you have ninety or one hundred and eighty days. What about this? Go in there and say, within twenty days, we're going to dram- dramatically reframe this and we're going to execute this. Cut the time in half." And then I love it. Be, be committed to a significant and dramatic return on investment. See, and I I think one of the things, people are are going around and they're saying, well, this is projects that we have to do. Interesting choice of word, we have to do it. So therefore we do it somewhat begrudgingly and we go into it lumberingly like an elephant. And I'm suggesting that if you just reframe how you look at projects, then you can then also project into the ecosystem and the culture speed, value, customer success, challenging the status quo, and then that permeates and gets hardwired throughout the entire organization.
1: Got it. You know, it's interesting because uh, you've heard, probably heard the saying, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person, right?
0: Correct. So, yeah.
1: uh, you know, those are the people you want, not the ones that are sitting around on their hands with, you know, nothing to do. So well, it's interesting. You know,
0: and I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I was, I was thinking of in healthcare, for example, Mm-hmm. Um, if you think of nurses and nurse managers, I do a lot of work within healthcare, and I can think of a nurse manager, on average, has somewhere between 35 and 50 direct reports. Some have as many as 75. So wow. because of healthcare costs you know, trying to be driven out of the system, there's more and more repeat people reporting into nurse managers. So one of my clients is the CEO of a hospital, and she said, these people have become so transactional Mm -hmm. they're just going through the motions it's about getting you know they're the human doings and their their brand is such that just get the job done and so what she did is she took the framework that we just suggested and discussed and she said yes we're going to make sure that our nurse managers learn how to do this and what was interesting is those busy people found the time in their days to do the project and they created hundred thousand dollars worth of value from each person or two and a half million dollars in total over the course of seven months and that then became the jumping-off point for then infusing it into all other areas of the hospital so you can take busy people and you can give them a framework and it can transform how they do their work and that's what I think is great about projects
1: now it's interesting because what you're saying is a lot of people on projects are not really engaged they're there because they have to be and I, I think we have this kind of um i don't know if you call it a disease but certainly a a tendency to have all these people in an organization who are there for to, to collect a paycheck they do the minimum uh and some of them just just aren't engaged it's, now it's not everyone and certainly organizations are different but how can you um how can you build this uh, a level of engagement. I mean, there's all this research that says employees are actively disengaged. How do you, you suggest know, that the fix this?
0: You know, it's, it is staggering, isn't it? And this goes back – this has been going on for over 30 years. You can go yep. back to the Yankelovich Group, and I think that they did a study. If I remember correctly, the study was called Putting the Work Ethic to Work. Right. And it was an interesting piece, and it said that, you know, how many people come to work every single day, and say, I'm going to do my best work. And the numbers were absolutely astounding. It was like 44% of all people came to work and said, I'm going to do my best work. So that meant that 56% of the people were not.
1: Were not, exactly. They're just there.
0: They're just there.
1: So then they asked
0: the 44%, how many of you could do more at work? And what the statistics proved some 35 years ago was that 70% of the people said that they could do more at work if they chose to, They just chose not to, Yep. right? So now we look at Gallup, and I am of the opinion that the the reason why this is a problem is because the company, if you look at the engagement processes that they use, and our friends in HR will do this, how do we engage our employees? Mm -hmm. Stop trying to engage them. How about if you go to your employees and say, listen, engagement is a two-way street. You're equally as responsible for being engaged at work, So we're going to partner with you on your engagement, and what we want to know is this. What are you doing every day to be engaged at work? So in other words, we share in the responsibility. We don't take the 100% responsibility for employee engagement and say that 80% of it is the employer's responsibility. We say to an employee, you are 100% responsible for being engaged at work, and we are 100% responsible for helping you be engaged at work. Mm-hmm. But I want to know, what are you going to do to be engaged? So I had a CIO client. He was in a university setting, and he had a chronic 12% um, vacancy rate. Okay. And I talked to him. I said, Jonathan, so you've been having this problem for how long? And he said, it's been over two years. The, the marketplace for talent is just too tight. And I said, no, 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 that's not the case. I said, so let's talk about engagement within your department. How many people do you think – are truly engaged. So he went around and started doing a management by walking around, and he asked people, and they said, well, you're not doing anything, and you're not (laughs) doing this. So what Jonathan did, he created the framework that we said, you're responsible. And what ended up happening was that he, by accident, learned that people wanted certain things in their work life that Jonathan wasn't aware of. And he said, okay, you do that, You take responsibility for driving it, and I'll support it. Well, what happened over about nine months, his vacancy rate fell from 12% down to 3%, and it's been that way for three years. Wow. And the interesting thing that he learned was he said the mindset of my employees all of a sudden shifted to they were much more engaged and they were being more productive, more effective, doing work that mattered, and all it took – was having a different conversation about who is responsible for engagement.
1: Now, it seems to me that what you've done is, is you've kind of moved from the uh, let's engage them, which is sort of like let's entertain them, to saying, hey, we have a problem. Let's, let's get you involved in the solution, which is yeah, a different everyone, way to look at it.
0: Yeah, for years and years we've known that the more control someone has in their work life, yes, that you know I suggest people go and do a, a search for employee engagement, and look at the first 10 articles. Every one of those 10 articles will basically position that the organization is responsible for engagement. Now, there Mm -hmm. are things you can do. Have the table tennis. You know, I have a good friend who just went to Google. She loves her work, fully engaged. Now, they threw a lot of money at her, and they also did a couple of things, you know, to make her life easier. But she is someone that takes 100% ownership for being engaged at work, and when it's no longer engaging, she goes to someone and says, "This is not working. I want to do this." Right. And her boss says, "If that, I, if that is what you want to do, I know that you will perform at your best if you go and do it. Let's find a way to make it work." So she doesn't abdicate engagement; she owns it, and that's a differentiator. And how do you infuse that into your culture?
1: Got it. Important. And and we could talk about this for hours. Cause it's fascinating stuff. You. But tell me, just, just to finish up, what's the one important shift that leaders need to make in order to get out of this transactional mode and, and really become much more transformational? Because you talk about the, the seven principles of transformational leadership. Where should we start? What's the one thing we should start with?
0: You've got to slow down. Without reservation, you've got to create some white space in your day. And what my belief is is, you know, everyone quotes Mario Andretti because he said, you know, if everything feels as though it's under control, you're simply not going fast enough. (laughs) Well, there's something because I've been to a Porsche racing school, and one of the things that I know, in order to go faster, your thinking and your breathing and your whole demeanor when you're behind the wheel needs to slow down. Yep. In other words, when you slow down, you can actually go faster. You can hit the apex of the curve and you can go faster because you're more at ease and you're in like that flow state. So what my recommendation to everyone who's listening to this, if you want to go faster and accomplish more, take five minutes in the morning, five minutes only, and just envision your ideal day. You can think of it, so I have a leadership purpose, and I have two things. I help convert human potential into accelerated results. I could spend five minutes on that every single day. What will that look like? What will it feel like? What will I do in order to have that happen? And I have a personal one that says I want to enable human flourishing every day. So my contention is if you spend a minimum of five minutes thinking about that, it sets the tone for the rest of the day. You can come up with one or two things that you can infuse into the day that will then help create that. Now, here's the thing. Fifteen minutes at the end of the day, and at the end of the day, you say, what worked? Mm -hmm. What didn't work? Uh, What will I do differently tomorrow? The simple process of asking what worked and why, what didn't work and why, and what will I do differently tomorrow, that process alone, it's a game-changer.
1: Got it. Great. Fantastic. Very helpful. Just five minutes in the morning, fifteen minutes at the end of the day and um and slow down. Create white space.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but don't don't tell people just to slow down. Know that slowing down allows you to go faster.
1: It allows you to go fast, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Slow down to go fast. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've been talking here with Hugh Blaine, who is the author of Seven Principles of Transformational Leadership. You know, if people wanted to find out more about you and the book, where would they go?
0: They would go to www.clarisconsulting.net forward slash book, but uh, that's the best place to go.
1: All right. Fantastic. Thank you, Hugh. It's been a pleasure having you here.
0: Thank you, Linda.
1: Until next time, thank you for listening to Marketing Thought Leadership.
0: We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by Leverage 2 Market Associates. If you'd like to find out how powerful marketing results can transform your organization, contact us at www.Leverage2Market.com.